Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Regenerative Roundtable. Uh, we're here with the usual suspects, although Neil is gone this time. He actually just left yesterday with his partner, Adriana, and they're off to a much-deserved vacation with his family in Madrid in Spain. So good for them. They've been slogging it out here with us all through the, uh, the rainy season and working tirelessly. So I, I'm really hoping that they have a good time, and uh, hopefully we'll get to post some pictures on the Instagram once they start sending them back. Yeah, so everybody has kind of different responsibilities and tasks that they manage here on the farm. Adriana was doing a lot of the accounting for the business and also managing the sales of the dairy products. So the milk, yogurt and different cheeses that we have. So they've both passed on their responsibilities. Neil's passed some of his projects that he was co-managing with Jeremy. um, And Adriana has passed them on to Jeremy's partner, Carla. So everybody's sort of figuring out each other's roles, but it's really good for having a little bit of redundancy in our processes, right? Yeah, you know, it's it's both equally uh, exciting and stressful. Um, and, you know, but we tried to plan as much as possible, especially uh, Adriana and, and Carla. It was a pretty uh, seamless Passover. So I can see I can see that she's um, already getting pretty good at, at managing the accounts. I'm impressed. <laughs> And you know, with with Neil and my projects, we we oftentimes work together on on just about anything. So 
it really just means extra workload for us. But, um, you know, we need to be able, we need to have this redundancy so that people can take time off. It's very important and I'm happy to facilitate that, you know. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about some of the new things that have happened both in the animal systems, especially, um, as well as the focus of the nursery that we've been working on as well. So we just added an extension to the goat house. Let's talk a little bit about why. Yeah, you know, it <laughs> it may not sound that exciting to some people, but for us, it's it's important because um, the goats are our, our moneymaker here in some ways, um, or at least they provide that consistent support that we need to, um, to pay the staff, basically, and to keep things rolling here. And so what that means is more goats and... We have to think of inventive ways of amplifying our space a bit without it costing too much because we don't, you know, we're not pulling in bank here, you know. <laughs> so we got, like usual, um, people give us things and what that means is we have to kind of make executive decisions on the spot. Um, our Colombian friend who's going to work in the States needed someone to watch his goats and you know he was offering to pay us or blah 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 and we're like and they're all pregnant and we're like just give us some of your goats when when they when they give birth and we're square um these kind of trades are perfect because it's really um um it's really helpful for everyone involved and we get to have more goats and so by next year we'll have double the capacity of, of milk coming out of here um and all we had to do to really uh provide for them was uh divide one of the uh one of the enclosures because it was just it was it was quite big but it would be like our goats would sit on one side and then the other goats who were honestly scared uh <laughs> out of their out of their lives um sitting on the other side so all we do is put a division in and the space works you know they're both comfortable on either side of it and we even opened up a fenced in area with a door on it for them for the new goats to go outside and have even more space so we doubled the space in a sense yeah the trick with this is that like there may technically still be enough space in the pen as we had it but goats being herd animals are somewhat territorial and they definitely have a hierarchy system and having a whole how many do we have like seven new ones that were that we're looking after six yeah um when they first came in they immediately kind of started fighting and jostling for position and hierarchy with the goats that we already had. And, you know, it makes for a bit of an uncomfortable social situation for them and giving them extra space, especially while they're pregnant, had more to do with just the comfort and not having them jostle for hierarchy when they when they moved into the new space. Yeah, in any, in any case, it's... Uh it's tricky deciding on these types of things because they're pretty permanent. And um, uh, But immediately we saw the results. We put in just a simple wall with a door on it inside of the enclosure and it didn't affect our goats at all. Like they're totally fine. And the new goats were just thrilled. They're just like, you can, you can see they're just so much happier. They behave better. Um, they get to actually bask out in the sun if they want to, which our goats don't, but they also don't seem to notice that they're able to do that. So it works out pretty good as well. We can now milk each group separately, um, which is also huge. That's a very <laughs> stressful time in the day with the goats. Um, it's one of those times where they really start to fight for their, for their position in the hierarchy. So if you have them separate, 
you can still milk them in the same spot. Um, like I said before, it's probably not that exciting to some people, but for us, it's a big deal. It, um, it makes everything work a bit better here. Also gives the chickens a new area to scratch and they seem to be pretty happy about that. Yeah, it's just one of those things that you start to learn as you interact with your living systems. It's kind of hard to plan for unless you have extensive experience with animals. And some of the designs for the animal enclosures just kind of had to be amended for the new things that we're observing in their behavior and observations of their level of health and how they interact with one another. And it's just one of those things that you have to be paying attention to or else you'll miss um, because a lot of it's subtle or it doesn't happen all day. Just like Jeremy was saying, when it comes to milk time, that's really when they start to kind of jostle for position and they really butt heads literally um, kind of pushing some of the smaller and weaker ones out into the corner and chasing them around. Um, none of them seem to get hurt particularly bad, but it definitely makes it more difficult to wrangle them into their milking positions and it makes the process more stressful than it has to be. So yeah, like Jeremy was talking about, these types of observations just kind of take some time and as you observe them over a period of time, you can make uh, additions or alterations to the structures to sort of reflect how they're interacting with each other. Yeah, it um, brought to mind for both Neil and I uh, one of the principles, one of the Mollisonian principles of permaculture, which is um, make the greatest effect with the least amount of change. Um, how much do you have to alter a system that you have in place for it to work much better? And a lot of times it's like either dividing up things or orienting um, components differently or figuring out new ways that they interact with one another instead of just... Um, What's the expression? Uh, taking the baby out with the bathwater? Yeah, yeah, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, that's now that I think about it, it's kind of weird. But anyways. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, it's a bit of an extreme saying, but I think we all know what we're talking about. Yeah. So what, what else are we talking about here, Ollie? Well, so we've had to change up the way that we are managing the ducks and the chickens together. Um, now, Jeremy led... The, the adjustments to this and tell me some of the observations that came up that made it essential for us to segregate them for the chickens. Yeah, a lot of times there's there's surprises with the animals, um, I notice. <laughs> you know, the ducks and the chickens were in there together. We would separate them um, after feeding and, and then we would feed the ducks separately because the chickens are just far more aggressive. What we didn't realize until careful observation and one moment, one startling moment was that um, the chickens w were starting to gang up on the ducks and they were doing it at times of the day. We didn't really notice like first thing in the morning, the chickens wake up hungry and they just are mean. And, um, I didn't notice that they were plucking the feathers out of the ducks so much cause they didn't look so bad. Um, but then one of the ducks who wasn't so healthy lost some feathers while it was bathing and the chickens started to just go after it. They noticed it was weak. And they just started to pluck at where the feathers came out. And this duck is white. And we woke up in the morning and there was blood coming out of the tips of its wings, like, quite bad. And, I was, and the chickens would just start going at it more and more when more blood came out. It was kind of nightmarish. <laughs> so we're like, uh-oh, now we got to change things. The ducks really need their own space. We have, um, we have six of them. And, uh, you know, I think that they're can be a, a much more useful part of the system um, than just being penned up there with the chickens anyways. So what that meant was that we would, you know, experiment a little bit and see what they really liked. Um, 
you know, it works out perfectly in some ways because we have water systems around. We have a pond. We have these sort of little flooding um, swales that the water flows out of the pond onto. And uh, it would be perfect for ducks. So we put them in there yesterday and they were immediately like extremely happy. In the pen, they don't really get to um, uh, eat many greens because the chickens are just far more aggressive. They don't really let them get to it. So now all of a sudden the ducks can go around and chew back the weeds growing out of the rocks on the side and the walls. They can go after the weeds growing in the pathways. And it's funny, they actually like a lot of these sort of tender weeds growing out than even the crops that were growing, um, it seems so far. I mean, we've had them out there for two days now. And all I see them doing is just going around the edges, sort of cleaning the stuff up for us. So I'm immediately thrilled. The uh, one problem we have, though, is that we have to put the ducks back into the pen at night. What that means is that if we have one laying right now, we'll probably have two soon. If uh, they can't lay on their eggs and if they don't have a place where they are all day, that means they can't hatch new new ducklings, which for us is pretty important because, well, you know, we'll probably be eating them pretty soon. So we need to have new ones on the way. So that makes things a bit more complicated. What that means now is making a new enclosure for them. And we got to think about how we can do that most effectively and without taking too much of our valuable time to do it. <laughs> yeah, sort of as you tweak the systems, you notice sort of weak points or difficulties in the way that you have changed it. So like this morning, I got up a little bit earlier and one of the first things that I saw was that there were feathers all over the place. Um, so we were able to get them away from the predation of the chickens, but overnight we had a stray dog get into the fenced off area where the ducks were, where the market garden is, and also where the pond is. So the ducks were very happy during the day, but unfortunately one of the dogs actually got that same chicken that had uh, the wounds from it, uh, from the chickens the other day. And, <laughs> and yeah, so we ended up losing one. And right now it's an issue of figuring out where the dogs are getting in, how we can segregate and protect the, uh, the ducks at night in a way that doesn't move them around too much so that they can remain sitting on their eggs and actually hatching new ducklings. Yeah, the dog situation, it was just like <laughs> another little nightmare happened right there. Um, but, you know, so you got to crack a couple eggs to make an omelet, you know what they say. Um, poor little duckling, though. We lost one. Um, but that was the only way to really know because I've had ducks outside before. And if they have like a safe little area, they seem to be fine. The problem is really we just have a lot of hungry dogs prowling about at night here. And it's it's probably not safe to ever expect that our fence line is really going to keep them out 100%. There's always a chance that one will find a way to get in. So, yeah, that on top of the whole laying situation kind of tells us, all right, we need to figure out some way that we can make an enclosure for the ducks um, that hope that why not that that we can move around, right? Because and we don't know how much we want them in our market garden either. So we got to think about that as well. Yeah. And that's a, one of the advantages of using those movable enclosures is that you can try them out in a number of different spots. Um, the ducks aren't really grazers and they're not nearly as aggressive with the vegetation as the chickens are. 
So it won't work so much like a chicken tractor in which you have to move them over a pile of earth regularly so that they don't uh, just become forced to eat the types of plants that aren't really healthy for them because they are selective and they'll definitely start out eating things that they prefer. And if you leave them in one spot without any new options for long enough, they'll start to eat plants that really aren't healthy for them or that they don't like. And so with chicken tractors, you have to move them very regularly uh, just so that they don't eat away all of their better options. The ducks are much more looking after like small insects and caterpillars and grubs and things like that, as well as more aquatic plants. So there's always a risk of having them eat back all of our edible aquatic plants around the pond. But just after two days, they don't seem to be too aggressive towards that. And they're still eating some of the cracked fermented corn that we give them as well. So it'll be interesting to observe this as we continue to try out different solutions. And I think, yeah, the next step is going to be coming up with a small movable uh, enclosure so that they'll be safe overnight, but that we can try it out in a few different places and see where they interact best with the systems that we have. So let's switch gears again a little bit and talk more about the nursery that has been planted over the last uh, almost two months now. Jared, can you talk to us a little bit about how we're finding a balance between uh, native species and heirloom varieties that do really well here and sort of the larger demand from the landscaping job clients that we have and what their needs are? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's kind of a tricky situation when we start talking about natives here. Um, but what we've realized is that um, most of the natives that are like, um, you know, authentic to this area, as opposed to ones that have been introduced in the last hundred years, is that a lot of them are our canopy species. And I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, because the rest of the species we use will consider more opportunistic or like forest edge species. And that's also where we see the change in terms of introduction of plants is that the opportunistic species that are introduced oftentimes occupy that niche on the edge of a um, developed system. And so we can kind of work with that, you know, especially considering that our clients are also interested in a lot of these species that have been introduced. Um, a lot of the medicinal and culinary herbs are, you know, either European well, European stock and then brought over and sort of uh, being conditioned to this environment in a lot of ways. Um, and as well as our veggies. I mean, everyone here eats veggies that um, either came from the new world and went to the old world and came back or from the old world. And, um, and we're all using here. So the way I look at it is I think that we can work as a stable... Um, late succession model, work with trees that are native to here, bring those back in. But in the interim, you know, we try to take advantage of of working on environments that are exposed and, uh, you know, people really want to pay attention to, to grow whatever species they want, in my opinion. And so working in our zone four, try to maintain this kind of native species canopy um, and try to attract, and that attracts a lot of um, of the fauna that are native to here as well and so if we keep that in mind with a lot of our projects reforesting and things like that we can kind of hold true to the ethics that we want to um, in terms of those projects which we have one coming up in a couple of weeks we have a retreat coming in and they like they have a, a karma yoga 
duty that comes along with their course. And they have asked us to um, put together a reforestation project for them. So what that simply means is we start planting avocado trees that are um, endemic stock to this area. We start planting some of these nitrogen-fixing species that accompany them really nice that are also native to this area. And then um, working on whatever species we can find that kind of like just show up a lot of times and that we can work into the system. There's a lot of volunteer species once you start adding water and you can create a whole, basically you just see what, what does well and uh, works with the system. This kind of thing also works great for our goats because we plant areas around our neighbors, basically. We give them new fruit trees. We give them these hardwood species that you can cut for firewood at times. Um, and then we maintenance it by basically going out and cutting the fodder for our goats. And we were talking to our neighbor yesterday and I was like, is it okay if we uh, clean your your coffee zone where we're planting the trees uh, when there's like weeds that grow up? And he's like, uh, yeah, <laughs> please. That would be uh, awesome. Thank you. Wait, you guys are going to plant fruit trees and, and, uh, and firewood um, species and you're going to clean it for us and water it? Why would they say no? What this also did for us, I'll just wrap up this little story right here, was also get us a contact for coffee. So we have a beneficio that we're almost done with. It's where we depulp coffee and sell it to our neighbor after it's been dried. He roasts it and sells it nationally to expats and to even, you know, to locals and anyone really that wants it here. And so um, working with our neighbors, trying to rehabilitate their canopy species uh, means that we'll also be in connection for buying the coffee from them at a better price than what it already is because we know that the quality will only get better as we help them with their, their coffee fields here. Yeah, and if anybody is interested in knowing more about what we're doing with this coffee processing plant, it's a pretty small and simple operation. Um, we've had the facility and the machine donated by our friend and neighbor, Tim Rare. Uh, if anybody remembers from a previous regenerative roundtable where Neil and I actually interviewed him, talked a little bit about how coffee started to become a commodity in this area of the world, even though it's originally from the eastern horn of Africa and Ethiopia region. It's a, it's a fantastic talk and Tim really knows his stuff. He walks us through the entire process of picking all the way to processing and uh, final roasting of the beans. So if you want to look back on that, I believe it's Regenerative Roundtable 7, but you can uh, find it by just doing a search for uh, the Regenerative Roundtables with coffee. And yeah, so over, it's been about a week and a half now since the Masons have come by and started to build out the design that I worked on with Tim. And we're nearly finished, which is perfect because a lot of our own coffee here on site is starting to ripen. And I'm really excited to see not only the quality of coffee that we can help to produce and the better prices that we can offer to our neighbors who would otherwise sell it for a price that, I mean, this year is barely worth even bothering to harvest. And if we can help to uh, engage growers to continue to improve their production methods, then they can continue to get higher prices. Uh, Tim can continue to produce higher end coffee and everybody sort of wins. The nice thing for our site here is that we get to keep a lot of the fertility. So the depulping process puts out a very sort of uh, sugar rich and nutrient dense pulp that we then process first through 
um, what they call lombri compost. Uh, lombrices are worms. And we've got our red wrigglers already uh, reproducing. So they'll process a lot of this coffee pulp before we introduce it to the larger composting system that we have in the goat pen, where each successive uh, unload of material goes down into different chambers. Where it gets tossed, it gets picked through by the chickens and sometimes by the ducks. And as it goes down to later stages, it gets aerated more. And then finally, we sift it into the high value compost that we propagate plants in and that we sell to clients and use on our own market garden. So really, we're using as many of the products as possible, even the waste products that normally otherwise just get chucked away. Yeah, you guys kind of just went through the ringer with us there. It's like we tried talking about the nursery and somehow we got all the way back to it again. (laughs) But beforehand, talking about every other thing going on. And that's kind of the idea here is that like everything feeds into itself. So you really can't talk about one subject here without, you know, going through paragraphs of looking at every other aspect of it. But that's really what it's all about. We, We can't waste any time on a single outcome kind of um, process here we need to see how it feeds in and um, and it works really well I mean it's the only way we can really effectively use our time and um, so I'm happy to run the nursery and and just kind of be in charge of that because it's it's one of the main kind of outcomes of a lot of this stuff is having plants available when we talk to people and we tell them you know what what plants we have available for them to buy right away, their eyes light up and they're like, why is they're like, Oh my God, finally someone's doing this, you know? So like, it's great for us cause we have our own plants, but um, you know, I think being able, and we oftentimes will go and install um, the plants for people too. And just seeing a whole landscape full of food at, at the end of a day, um, ready to produce stuff for people is, is great. And, you know, being a, a catch all service, uh, is really kind of fulfilling for me in a sense as opposed to just you know building a, a terrace and then saying good luck with that you know we can actually just we can see the whole thing um fill out in front of our eyes so that's why i'm into it well so along those lines Jared, tell me a little bit about the intro to permaculture course that you got and neil just finished up with a few other facilitators i wasn't able to participate as much as i would have liked to because i was sort of finishing up the detail work on the Hobbit house that I was building for our friend and neighbors down the hill. But tell me a little bit about what you covered in that course and the practicals that you did here on the farm as well. Yeah, so um, I was involved more in the practicals on this one, um, which was worked out in a way because I was able to like hold down the fort. Um, as you, you know, there's so many things going on. I was, I was just getting the nursery started and um, we finally have like a nice stock sitting. So I was kind of focused on that, but when the groups came in here, basically, I gave them a practical on earthworks, which um, I, it was great that I was able to focus in on it because I could really kind of land home some some very important sort of underlying um, patterns to design for the students, and it's, it's something I'm very passionate about, and I think I was able to really get that across for them. Uh, what we find oftentimes when we teach these courses at earthworks um, people don't really get uh, what it means for the design to really like think this phase through. So I just like hammered them with it <laughs> for hours. Just like, and um, 
and it, you know you see people start to really get it and they get impassioned by it and um it's just only going to make better designers in my opinion <laughs> and um it's like it's the one step that i'm really focused on when i when i do design work is like how is the landscape going to be like formed before anything else goes on to it you know and it and it's amazing because it can really just like show you um teach you how the rest of the aspects of the design will will come through it kind of just tells you after you start working on it and we got to do a whole um contour terrace on the bottom parcel of the land with them and you know we 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 marked it out and we started carving it out i said all right guys like you know what does this mean for the landscape and we started to realize that like um, there's different places where water could be stored that would make sense some of the areas opened up more and they could be um, an area for a structure you know and uh, the whole landscape started to come together before our eyes and um, I don't know I I found it to be a, a really good course everyone came away very excited and um, yeah I'm excited to do more we got a couple more coming up here soon and um, I think it's only gonna get better as the high season progresses I know one of the practicals that you guys also worked on was double digging the beds in the garden. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important in our context with the type of soil that we have? Yeah, so that's the other empowering, um, one of the other empowering practicals that we do with the students. Um, another thing that we don't really get to get into much is a lot of the fine-tuned uh, techniques for gardening that you can employ. And it's it's one of the things that people come into it wanting to get out because... It's really applicable to anyone how to grow food, you know, and uh, and quickly, too. So um, we try to focus our sort of cultivation of the soil in very like intense and kind of condensed areas. So what that means is we just provide every um, comfort and luxury that our soil will need to give us good food. One of those things is... Um, filtering the soil a bit and putting it back into the bed that we're we're growing stuff in over some semi-broken down uh, compost mostly carbon material with a lot of um a lot of kind of like still kind of poopy stuff hanging around it um so yeah we basically dig out the bed for this double dig technique we dig out the bed we put in the um, sort of semi-raw compost because it doesn't need to be perfectly broken down and I'll explain in a minute why um, and we start to add some some uh, lime to it or magnesium to um, help it break down a bit give it some structure and we add all the soil on top of it with some finely broken down compost so the reason why we put all the stuff at the bottom of it is that the plants don't access it right away but it, what it is is sort of a a fuel source or food for the uh, microbial community that we're creating. Um, the worms really love this sort of like semi-broken down sloppy stuff because it's loaded with bacteria. And once you get it under the soil there, it starts breaking down quite quickly because there's so many things looking for food in the soil, all sorts of bugs and stuff. But the important one is the worms because they um, will consume all these bacteria and just start... Um, turning it into castings immediately and also giving the soil a thing we call tilth, which is what you get after you cultivate the soil, but shortly thereafter disappears as rain and other um, conditions start to compact the soil again. The worms stop that from they, the worms stop that compaction phase. They keep it in this sort of rich, spongy 
aerated uh, form that we really need for our plants. So by the time the plants have grown through this topsoil layer we put in, the soil down or the organic matter down, uh, down beneath is perfectly ready for them to start tapping into. And so we kind of like <laughs> don't have to worry. We, you know, we put a lot of work in right away, but then we can kind of just watch it grow for a long time because there's so many resources there down beneath and the soil is so well conditioned to be healthy. And we probably won't have to till it for years as well um, because of this, this whole factor, right? So that's kind of the idea behind our, our double dig beds. Um, it's permaculture. Woo! Yeah, and moving towards a system which we no longer have to till. Um, the no-till method allows the microbial life down below to be undisturbed. And like sometimes what happens is immediately when you till, you get a big flush of bacteria because it's suddenly oxygenated. And that's all great, but then you also have a die-off very shortly after. And like Jeremy was talking about, we also inoculated with EMs that we brew here on site. Um, just charges it with a ton of microbial life and there's plenty of nutrition at multiple levels. Uh, another reason why it was really important for us is that we're in extremely rocky soil. Basically, our entire acre that we have here, a little less, is a boulder field, which we are trying to grow plants in. And so that requires a lot of conditioning of the soil to get the nutrient matter in there and the life that's necessary to cultivate the amount of annuals that we're putting in our market garden. Now, almost all the rest of the site is going to be focused more on perennials, but for some of our own veggie needs and um, yeah, just as far as like popular plants to sell vegetables and stuff to sell here annuals are the easiest for turnover and for profit and we're showing a lot of demonstrations about what you can do with a small piece of land so though it's only a small portion of this parcel here that's dedicated to annuals it does need to be sort of babied given the amount of rocks that we have on site so little by little with this double dig uh, method and being able now to leave it and just sort of top dress it with more nutrition and compost uh, i think that's about as good as we can do here on this site yeah and um, i'm glad you brought up the rocks because <laughs> that is a big portion of the project uh, we 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 tend to have 40 to 50 percent rock in the mass of the soil or pebbles uh rocks etc anything bigger than like a couple centimeters um, we generally take out sometimes we leave some of that stuff in there but um what it means is we have a massive byproduct of gravel and small rocks right so we got to figure out what do we do with all this stuff so we we end up making these um we dig out trenches and we put them in for pathways so that water doesn't build up where we step along um but we're like, we still have too many. <laughs> so we're figuring, we're trying to think of different ways we can use them. And rocks are great for drainage, but they are also considered a mulch layer if you have them, if you have enough of them. So we've been sort of testing out these uh, rock mulch borders. Or I don't know, I just made that up. But uh, the idea is basically, you know, you, you, for, you make terrace walls out of rocks along the edges of your parcels. That's where a lot of your perennial plants are, and it's also where a lot of weeds grow and you don't feel like picking them. So um, we'll pile up rocks along these edges. We'll even fill in whole areas with rocks and gravel. And before we do that, we actually plant into those areas oftentimes. The rocks create a massive kind of mulch layer above the plant that actually doesn't get too wet, but it also doesn't get too dry. 
So it's sort of a um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, it's like well draining. Well, what it does is it moderates the temperature for the root roots of the plant. So during the day when it gets really hot, it doesn't the heat doesn't penetrate the rocks so much. They kind of absorb a lot of it. And then overnight, as they cool down, um, moisture condenses on the rocks themselves. So it actually is a great way to catch energy. Um, yeah, to catch extra humidity overnight for the plants. And on top of that, we don't have to weed those areas. And we're actually seeing a lot of plants really, really like this. And it's a superior sort of soil cap to a lot of other materials because it doesn't break down as well. Um, so that was a great little kind of aha moment and i think we'll start to use all uh, this extra rubble kicking around <laughs> uh, for the rest of the parcels that we're working on on the edges basically oh yeah geez i just keep talking here ollie um why don't you tell us about your uh, natural building course the first one of the season correct how did that go yeah thanks it was awesome so we always have them following up the intro to natural or sorry the intro to natural building always follows up the intro to permaculture and they pair together really well because you first uh, get to understand a lot about ecology and how to interact in a healthy way with ecosystems and then we go into the design portion of buildings and how to work with the resources that you have on any given site so that better understanding of ecology then better informs how you're going to design the built world as well. And a lot of the students from the Intro to Permaculture course sort of hit the ground running when they came over to the natural building one with their new understanding of the ecology, especially of this site. So we actually, this was, I completely overhauled the course for this season and we're trying out a lot of new things. So we got to do a test wall for rammed earth, one for light straw clay as well. And to be honest, this was the very first time I've even tried rammed earth and it went swimmingly. Like uh, we put together the forms really well. Uh, and in fact, we've got some videos and some pictures that I'll post. And that's actually, it's the cover picture of last week's podcast because I went through the intro to design and siting as, as the episode of last week. So if anybody's interested in kind of seeing some of the content that we cover on the course, you can hear that first lecture from day one and download an accompanying PDF to go along with it. Uh, we did some work on the house here as well because we're starting to go into some of the finish work and add on some of the last essential features to make this a really comfortable living area. Now that we're all moved into the house, we just need to get better bathrooms. Uh, we've been using one composting toilet out on the side of the house during this entire time. And quite frankly, it serves really well. But we're thinking of moving it to a different part of the property more for the workers and for the volunteers to use because we've got space behind the house, which we're now converting into private bathrooms. And so we're going to do some extra framing for the walls there and fill those in with the bahareke technique, which is more commonly known in English as wattle and daub, which is what the rest of our house is built out of as well. So we did some framing there. We strapped it up with what they call cintas or fajitas, uh, strips of bamboo that act as the wattle to hold in the earthen elements of the wall system. And uh, we've, we also did a lot of plastering, especially the base coat layer or brown coat, uh, sometimes also referred to as a scratch coat on the outside of the building. So since that course, we've actually hit the ground running because Neil's room is unoccupied for the week and a half that he's away on vacation. We've started to do the base coat on the walls in his upper floor. 
So his place is really coming along now because he's got his windows, he's got the base coat plaster in there. And not only does it help to reduce the powdering and the cracking that's coming off of the unfinished walls, but it's also hopefully going to do a lot for the privacy there. Because we do have some uh, cracks and separations just from, you know, normal shrinkage in the clay that we've put in the walls. But those openings are kind of reducing the privacy that we have and you can hear pretty clearly in between the rooms. So I'm hoping that this is going to be a big step up for all of us just as far as comfort and privacy goes. And plastering is just one of my favorite tasks in natural building. So we've got our team here. We've got Nico, Miguel and Ricardo all jumping in and I'm showing them leveling techniques with the wooden trowels as well. So after you put that first coat on, then you get it really nice and level even though it roughs up the surface. And then pretty soon we'll start going on to the final coat, which I was finally able to find a source of kale and clay here in the country that they mine directly from here. So though it is a little bit of an industrial process to acquire the clay, it's a really, really nice quality, pure white, um, very low cracking for the shrinkage that happens with the clay. And we've got uh, different types of sand right here in our valley that we know to source from and can get it sifted. So a lot of those materials are already ready to go and we can make really nice uh, finished plasters from them, which I've actually been testing out on that Hobbit house that is coming to a close at our neighbor's place down uh, lower in the valley. So yeah, a lot of fun stuff going on here. Uh, with all those new things that we got to try out in the natural building course, I think this next uh, round that'll be happening in December is going to be really fun. So if anybody's interested in jumping in on those and wants to come out here and help us do some work and learn a lot in the process, uh, just look for us under the courses page and the tab on our website at AbundantEdge.com. And that should just about wrap it up for for what we're talking about in this session. So if you want to keep following us in the progress of our demonstration farm, which by the way now has an official name, this is Granja Sikin. If anybody wants to see more pictures of what we're talking about, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at either Granja Sikin or Abundant Edge where we're posting uh, pictures of the progress and the projects here all the time. So we look forward to seeing you there. And uh, yeah, any parting words for us, Jer? Thanks for listening, everyone. And anyone that's interested in coming out and helping out with us here, um, we're looking for people to, to volunteer. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to do and a lot to learn. So um, inquire on at Abundant Edge or, for, or at Grand Hasikin. And yeah, for any reason, the course schedule of this season doesn't fit into your travel plans. I understand that it can be uh, difficult to time things coming down to Guatemala. If you just want to come in and see what we're doing, we offer farm tours on Fridays that are organized by Atitlan Organics. And we also accept volunteers now. Uh, we've got a great volunteer page on the website as well. One of our former volunteers wrote a great article giving an idea for anybody looking to participate and what sort of daily life looks like here, who you're going to be working with, and the types of things that we do on a daily basis. So yeah, we really look forward to seeing you here, and we'll catch you on the next Regenerative Roundtable episode. Bye. See you later. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, 
build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session. Thank you.